0: You're listening to the New World of Work podcast by the McKinsey Global Institute. We're exploring the future of work, how automation technologies, including artificial intelligence and robotics, could disrupt how we work, where we work, the skills and education we need to work, and what we can do to prepare for these transitions today. Hello, and welcome to the latest podcast in our series on the New World of Work. I'm Peter Gumbel from the McKinsey Global Institute, And today we'll be taking a look at the quite different ways that new technologies, including automation and artificial intelligence, will affect work in different parts of the world. Specifically, we'll be looking at China, at Europe, and at India. These differences come about for a number of reasons that we explain in our new MGI report on the future of work, which is called Jobs Lost, Jobs Gained, Workforce Transitions in a Time of Automation. Among the reasons for these differences are different levels of economic development, different wage rates and different potential for automation adoption in different countries. First, let's talk about China. Here to do so is Jonathan Wurtzel, who is director of the McKinsey Global Institute based in Shanghai. Jonathan, perhaps you can start by telling us where the Chinese workforce is at the moment. There's been an incredible shift over the past 25 years, out of farming and into industry. What does the future look like?
1: The workforce is uh, in transition, and it's been like that for a couple of decades, and the outlook is for more of the same. So, first of all, China is only about 52% urbanised, so there's roughly another 300 million people who are coming in from the uh, farms to the cities and to work in industry and services. Every year is uh, another 10, 12 million people who are changing their work. And on top of that, now we've got an increase of productivity in that industrial and urban workforce, which is a function of automation, but also of just uh, improvement in management approaches and, uh, and the investment of capital. So each and every year, for example, in industry, the average Chinese worker is approximately 12 or 13 percent more productive and more value added than they were the year before which is astounding and that that's been going on for decades Uh, and it says two things one is that the chinese workforce can become more productive every year but also says that the chinese workforce is very unproductive right now there's a lot of upside if we compare the productivity of the average chinese worker to the average american worker it's uh anywhere between three and six times as low. <laughs> There's a big gap. So all of this is saying that the workforce is uh, rapidly in transition. It's automating, it's becoming more productive, and is redeploying. The redeployment rate for Chinese manufacturing is approximately 40%, which means that every year, 20% of jobs are created and 20% of jobs are destroyed in Chinese manufacturing which is astounding. Yeah. So in terms of transitions, China is already showing that it's possible
0: and actually it's something that, that can happen and not be too disruptive? Or is it extraordinarily disruptive?
1: Well, I think it's, it is both. I mean, I think it's extraordinarily disruptive at the individual level. These are life-changing moments where you pick up and go from your village or when you are you know, replaced in your workplace. But by the same token, this is now business as usual. <laughs> for China. So China is, I think, in many ways showing how to manage a transition at scale and high speed uh, in a way which has never been done before. The thought that you can literally change the jobs of hundreds of millions of people over the course of mere decades is astounding. If you had told anybody that this would happen 20 or 30 years ago, they would have laughed at you.
0: And how does it work with the change in skill requirements and how are they managing to to cope
1: with that. The one thing I can say about the Chinese workforce is probably the least romantic workforce in the, in the world. This is a workforce that does not ask the question why, it just asks how. <laughs> how will I take the next step? For example, education. One of my favorite stories is that it's quite cheap to buy a degree. Uh, in China. And if you go to you know, the XYZ University of Science and Technology, you can probably spend a couple hundred RMB and you can have a certificate which says you have a degree. And so people will do that. And then you say, well, is that how you do a job transition? And the answer is the same time as they're spending a couple hundred RMB on a degree, they're also spending thousands of RMB, 20, 25% of their personal income on what could be charitably called skill development going to lectures on winning friends and influencing people, buying uh, videotapes of Jack Ma explaining how to become an entrepreneur. People are willing to invest in themselves. Yes, they'll buy the degree, uh, but they actually want the skill, and they'll actually pay for the skill. And that is how the job transition happens in China, is this uh, vast entrepreneurial outburst of hundreds of millions of people saying, I want a better life, and I want to invest in it. So in our new uh, report on the future of work, One
0: of the factors that we see as being very important for influencing the timing of automation adoption is wage levels. In China, obviously, wage levels are much lower than they are in in, in the United States or other advanced economies, but there's also been some changes there too.
1: Yes. I think wage levels are on the rise because, first of all, China is not a labor-rich country anymore. In fact, China has already reached its Lewis turning point, so that the, the Chinese workforce from here on in will shrink. There's still this agricultural to urban transition, but in terms of the total workforce and the total population, we're now on a declining trend. Uh, So given that, the official government encouragement to raise productivity makes a good deal of sense. And you're not going to have as much input, so your productivity better go up. Otherwise, you're not going to have as much growth. So from the wage level, higher productivity should and for the good of the country and society will translate into higher wages. How that happens is actually a question of income distribution. And uh, I suppose the good news is that wages and consumption are growing faster uh, than the overall economy, which indicates that we are seeing some of this increases in productivity uh, go back to the average consumer. And for the record, over the last decade, every decile of the Chinese working population has had increases in income. Uh, So the population as a whole has been improving its quality of life and its standard of living, Granted, some people have been improving a lot faster than others. Okay, so given
0: these various elements, you've got the shrinking workforce, you've got relatively low wages still, and obviously you've got this huge shift into industry. How is automation going to play out in China?
1: First of all, China will be very accepting of automation, and China is actually very encouraging of it in that it sense it realizes that in order for China to become rich, it needs to become productive and that there isn't going to be any other path than to improve the quality and the capacity of the workforce. So we will see China uh, innovating and uh, everything from facial recognition to machine learning, dark factories. Uh, you know, these already are a feature of most Chinese industrial facilities, certainly the leading edge ones. At the same time, we're going to see a growth in income. They said, particularly in middle-class income. So China is world's single greatest consumer story. So it's almost twenty percent of global consumer income growth for the next fifteen years will be coming just from working-age Chinese. So that, in turn, drives a huge employment boom to provide the goods and services, in particular, for those middle class. Everything from healthcare to recreation and culture to education to uh, good, you know, to consumer goods. The influence of automation will be on balance, a factor in accelerating the productivity, but it won't necessarily lead to a concern about job shortages per se, or for that matter, work shortages. (laughs) Or that there will be rather a impetus towards a use of the technology to create more productivity in the economy, both in terms of efficiency, also in terms of growth and providing services and value added which will be the new jobs, and the the jobs that are going to serve the middle class. So it's, uh, in many ways, China is a bicycle, and uh, one has to keep pedaling. And this is just that much more fuel for that bicycle of growth. Sounds like automation is gonna be the engine in the bicycle. Thank you very much, Jonathan. Thanks.
0: That was Jonathan Wetzel, who is a director of the McKinsey Global Institute based in Shanghai, giving us his view of China. Now we're gonna go across the world to his colleague, another MGI director, this time based in Brussels, and that's Jacques Bougain. Jacques, thanks for being with us. When I was looking at your work on artificial intelligence, it was quite striking to see that the United States and China seem to be taking the lead, whereas Europe seems to be rather far behind. Is that a fair assessment?
2: It's a fair assessment with two twists. Twist number one, AI as a supplier, an inventor of technology seems to come out from the U.S. and China and China has been very explicit as a country to say they want to win the war for AI and be the one providing the supply of all these technologies. The U.S. has been quite smart in digital technologies. We have large companies that are investing in AI. AI is actually a necessary set of technologies to improve the products that they have. Now, Europe has been lagging in digital, and if you lag in this technology learning curve, it's going to be tough for you. Now, we see pockets in in Europe of AI companies. The AI tech is quite large, if you look at... But it's actually quite concentrated. It's concentrated in cities like Zurich, most of the time in cooperation with technical universities. It's obviously London. But guess what? The companies that are in Europe have been pretty much bought by the U.S. guys, things about Google buying DeepMind and so on. Europe is there as well, but it's not as varied and as large as we can imagine. And the second thing is that, remember, for the future of work to happen, it's not gonna be just the ICT part of the supply side. It's gonna be the demand side, i.e. are people adopting these technologies. And from the data, what we see as well is that Europe is pretty much okay. But, you know, China is already there, the US is slightly ahead, and some of the countries in Europe, the digital frontrunners, the small countries, are actually a bit ahead in experimenting and using these technologies.
0: So let's just turn to what the impact of automation could be for Europe. Clearly, you have some issues, including a high potential for automation, um, and also a relatively slow-growing economy which, uh, based on the research that uh, the McKinsey Global Institute has just published, add up essentially to the idea that automation could come earlier rather than later and have quite a big effect on the labor force. What are the implications here for European countries and societies?
2: These technologies have the potential to actually shape the future of businesses and the future of work. That means that a lot of these technologies of AI, which are today quite robust and proven, can actually do cognitive task as well as you do. Technology usually drives productivity. Now, the key question is that what is this productivity going to lead to? Is it reinvested in the economy to create new jobs? And what we believe is exactly that. It will create new extra jobs, jobs that you've never seen before. And every decade, we create 10% of jobs that you haven't heard before. Think about the day we started all using Google and search and search marketing jobs were invented. Now, we now invented, obviously, cloud engineers. All these jobs, it's something you couldn't imagine to exist 20 to 30 years ago. And finally, if the economy reinvests the gain of productivity, that means that uh, that productivity will be spent in the economy. Net-net, we believe that there will be a relocation of skills and jobs. Job markets could be quite resilient, and Europe is likely to be, in that case, to provide it then the productivity gains are happening and two, they are invested in the economy. And obviously that trade-off between job being disappearing with new job allocation will depend on the speed of adoption, will depend as well as whether we use these technologies not for simply efficiency, but for exciting new product innovation. And that's the key these technologies will provide productivity gain that we haven't seen in the long time in Europe, where Europe is actually challenged by a productivity growth which is not that great, and on top of that, an ageing population, which means that the way to create wealth in the economy is quite complex. There is also a question about the redeployment and the
0: re-employment in Europe, and Europe famously doesn't have very fluid labor markets. So how much of that is going to be a, a serious issue for, for European leaders to deal
2: with? You actually put the finger on the real issue of this picture. This picture will only happen if we manage that reallocation, right? And we should not idle ourselves from the fact that this is not only complex as a process, but the size of it is actually not something small. But as you said, we have labor markets in Europe that tend to be uh, slightly more rigid than other markets. A large effect is actually job reorganization. Companies adopting this technology will have to reorganize the type of jobs they offer. How easy would it be to do that? Companies going to have to reorganize the way they work to make sure they get the juice out of this technology. So we need to make sure this thing happens, and we know it's an organization challenge. Skills uh, will be more an upskilling game than anything else. And the skills that will be interesting to develop, obviously skills that tend to be much more complementary to the cognitive skills of those automation technologies. Now, if we think about these extra cognitive skills that will come out, they tend to be social, they tend to be emotional, they tend to be about creativity. So this is the challenge. How do we unleash these type of new skills into business processes? These are skills that possibly we never get the chance to nurture too much in the way we work because they were not needed. But, you know, think about you as a kid. The mobility within the industries is actually quite small. In this case, obviously the impact of technology will be very different, you know, sectors by sectors. And the mobility will require both upscales and possibly intersectoral mobility. This is possibly one of the key challenge. How do we do this? How fast can you get reorganization internally? How fast can we get the upscale for the new jobs to be fitting in interaction with automation technologies? And by the way, are you prepared to be intermobile across industry? That's not the same as a rigid labor market. It's actually three things within the labor market that needs to happen, whatever the country is where you are. Mm. If this takes too long, if it takes two to three years for any eventual to do, that's going to create friction, and that friction has to be managed, to be shortened, and Possibly from a social point of view, let's be realistic. We need to find ways that people can have the financial means to adjust to that transition, but need relocation, and need to back company. It's not a question of either or. In Europe is actually the test bed for that, because we got an interesting social security potential. And on top of that, we see countries slowly adopting this experiment with the two sides of social and technology so let's learn from that is my message
0: so let's just pick up the last point on the social safety nets Um, do you think that the european welfare state as it exists is sufficiently adaptable to to actually provide the transition and income support that displaced workers are going to need in this transition period
2: That's a very, very big question. I think that like every evolution, we're gonna need to find a way to experiment and adjust. I would just give two or three ideas. And again, these are just ideas that are likely not to be great. But I think the plea from your question is much more, why not to experiment many things to see what can work? Now, a few things that could happen. If we believe that social security has to be adapted, instead of saying we give people that amount of money for unemployment, the key question is to say, why not to give firms those type of money to make sure that they create an, a, a lifelong learning platform that they can co-finance across firms for people like you and me to start learning even more than they did before? Why not to make sure that instead of working you know, so many hours a week, you know, a portion of it, 2 3 5% of that is actually devoted for new learnings And by the way, these learnings, if you do it right, will give you the rights to basically get points for your pension in the future. Remember, what is interesting in this concept is that instead of adjusting the number of hours to work, because they will likely have a bit less of work in the future, uh, you still work, but you work for the future. And actually, firms have an incentive possibly to even co-finance, because firms are not bad guys. They're not there to take people out. They want people that are good in doing their job in complementary with capital, being smart capital or being the normal capital. And for them, they need these skills. And these skills actually come from job trainings most of the time. So these are a few examples that we could imagine doing.
0: Well, thank you very much, Jacques. That was Jacques Bougain talking about the promise and challenge of automation technologies in Europe. Now we're going to go to India, where the situation is really quite different again. And talking to us about the situation in India is Anu Madgavkar, who is an MGI partner based in Mumbai. Anu, perhaps you can tell us about how the Indian employment market looks today and what it's going to look like in the next 15 to 20 years. We can see that a very young and dynamic population is growing fast, and that presumably will have a big impact on employment and the labor market. Is that indeed the case?
3: So India has uh, a labour force of about 450 million, so it is a very large labour force and it's growing, as you say, adding something like 8 to 10 million every year. So I think the predominant question on people's minds in India is really where will the jobs come from? And the concern tends to be really around this notion of jobless growth, questions around maybe the economy is growing at 6 or 7%, but, you know, are there jobs? When we looked at some of the data, actually, we found that the issue uh, in India, first of all, is not so much about the quantity of jobs that matters, but the quality of jobs. And by the quality of jobs, we mean things like the productivity that workers are actually able to generate, the output, and then the wages, and then a whole bunch of other conditions around their work, whether it's income security, whether it's being part of a more organized and you know formalized value chain, you know decency in work, it's those kinds of issues. And the reason why the quantity of jobs is less important is because most of the Indian workforce is actually in the unorganized and informal sector. It's very rare that somebody would be unemployed. In fact, the unemployment statistics are not very reliable in India. Unemployment is traditionally as low as 4% and pretty much stays there through up and down cycles. It doesn't mean much. People just end up doing any kind of work that comes their way, uh, and therefore they're technically employed, but the issue is that they're not really employed in gainful work or in productive work. So the issue for India is really how to boost the rate of job creation in sectors and occupations and types of work that actually generate more income and more linkages of workers with organised parts of the business. And that is an issue. We see some evidence that some things are working well in India, but we do have concerns about whether that pace is good enough and a set of things that we need to accelerate that pace.
0: But at least the economic growth is robust and that presumably is raising demand and, and helping propel consumption, which in turn creates jobs. So, how uh, important is that as as the sort of the motor going forward? Is that going to be what really determines the the whole employment picture?
3: Absolutely. In fact, we've looked at the data that suggests that in periods when the economy grew at seven and seven and a half percent, the labour market actually saw a very positive transformation in the sense that there was an accelerated growth in uh, the employment in sectors like construction, trade, transportation, hospitality. These are really the mainstay of job growth in any emerging or developing country like India. So these sectors actually saw some maybe 11 to 12 million jobs per year being added, while the agricultural sector actually saw labor coming out of it. And this is really important because if you compare a typical construction sector worker with an agricultural sector worker, there's a 70% uplift in productivity that comes from moving out of agriculture and moving into construction. If you move out of agriculture and move into the transportation and logistics sector, that's again an 80% uplift in productivity, with a commensurate sort of wage benefit or impact to the worker. So this structural transformation where workers are less dependent on low productivity sectors, even at relatively low or medium skill levels, but moving into sectors that are fundamentally more productive, happens when the economy grows and therefore uh, economic growth is actually probably the most important driver of long-term labor productivity growth for the country.
0: And this move out of agriculture, which is a shift we've seen actually in other countries, uh, in in the United Kingdom and the United States, but also more recently in China, how recently did that begin and, and how much more has it got to run, would you say?
3: I think it has to run a lot more because I think we've seen it start to move in the last 10 to 15 years. I mean, the Indian economy only liberalised in the early 90s and we did see sectors, mainly the services sector, actually grow only from then. And therefore, I think we still are in a place where 45% or so of the labor force continues to depend on agriculture so we have a long way to go and we have to make this transition in an era where creating jobs out of manufacturing is going to be more challenging simply because of automation playing a bigger role in several types of manufacturing Uh, and therefore I think India has to think about a multipolar strategy it has to have engines firing in terms of sectors like infrastructure building, building out cities, which creates demand for lots of urban services and construction. Uh, It has to think about how to take the benefits of IT and digitization deep into lots of types of work that can enable less skilled workers to actually use that technology and be more productive. This sounds counterintuitive, but there are very interesting examples from India where technology-based financial services are being taken deep into rural India by these armies of banking correspondents who are middle-skill or even low-skill people but enabled by technology to be more productive than what they would otherwise have done. So we will have to find you know, multiple engines and I think we, we can't minimize the role that manufacturing has to play as well. There are sectors in manufacturing where India can do more The textile and garment sector is one such example. We can do more in other areas as well. But it's got to be a combination of sector-oriented policies that boost demand across many of these areas to absorb that labour out of agriculture.
0: You mentioned automation in conjunction with manufacturing. But more broadly, how do you see automation impacting the Indian economy?
3: We do see automation actually impacting the workforce as businesses across sectors adopt more technology, but we do find that relative to more advanced economies, because average wage rates are still much lower in India than in advanced economies, that threshold at which it makes sense to automate a task or, you know, automate a worker's work, that threshold is actually uh, much, much lower, right? So we would not see as rapid a trend towards automating work as you would in the advanced economies. Uh, But nevertheless, I think you would see something like the equivalent of uh, 60 million workers potentially being substituted by technology in some shape or form by 2030. So the challenges of retraining and redeployment are not insignificant even in India.
0: They're not insignificant, but it sounds like the challenges are more around how to create gainful jobs and and how to find work for this very large cohort of young Indians coming onto the labour market.
3: That's true, and um, I think the challenge gets a little bit compounded with uh, kind of changing and rising aspirations and expectations of the workforce. Our analysis would suggest, for example, that there are more than enough jobs that could be created by boosting, let's say, infrastructure, urbanization, investment in affordable housing. A lot of these jobs are going to be in the construction sector. Now, the issue really is, you know, is there a mismatch between what, young people want versus the kind of work that's actually out there. I think there is a generation of young people in India who've grown up with the aspiration being the white collar office job, which is typically a clerical job. But that's the kind of job that actually will get automated, right? And therefore there is something to do with finding more meaning and more value in doing different kinds of work. Uh, Even while we need to take steps to make that work decent and not hazardous, but even as we do that, there is something about the mindset of workers and what they expect as well.
0: Last question is around Indian technology, because obviously India has done very well with IT uh, and has become a a global player. Is there an opportunity here with automation for India to actually leapfrog and really move ahead fast and uh, therefore speed its development?
3: I think there is. I think uh, India's IT capabilities are an important part of uh, its foundational uh, digital capabilities. Right. As you think about India's economy, I think one of the important capabilities is just that you have a strong IT sector and they have innovated a business model that's actually worked very well for the last maybe two decades. Now I think that the, the demands of that type of work are changing very rapidly because of automation. So that's the first trend we need to recognize, that digital skills and capabilities are going to be more important for the IT sector and for workers in the IT sector going forward, because the clients they serve are going digital. We also need to recognize that the IT sector is moving up the productivity curve very rapidly, and therefore the job creation for IT professionals uh, in terms of the IT services industry will continue to grow but perhaps not at the pace that it has grown in the past because they will move to more productive work. So that's, if you will, on the negative side, that you do need to build new capabilities and your job creation pace may actually be slower. But there are a huge set of positives in terms of the opportunities as well because what is happening is that as Indian businesses adopt more digital capabilities close to business, uh, the hiring needs of an Indian, let's say, uh, you know, consumer products company or an Indian financial services company, those hiring needs are moving towards people who have skills in digital and in technology. So the IT services sector may not hire at the same pace, but people who have the right skills can actually move into all sorts of different types of firms that are thinking through how they can digitise. And then this whole issue of inclusive digital transformation is actually a very important one in India. And I think that is also going to sustain a lot of productivity growth and job growth going forward.
0: Thank you very much indeed, Anu, for that very interesting discussion of the employment situation in India, given the current rapid growth of the workforce. And that concludes today's podcast by the McKinsey Global Institute on different aspects of the changing and very new world of work. We hope that you'll be listening in to further episodes of our podcast series, which cover issues ranging from how technology has played out on issues of employment in history and whether this time anything is different, to questions about the skills and potentially the wages in the future as these technologies are increasingly adopted in the workplace. You can download our research for free from the McKinsey Global Institute website at www.mckinsey.com MGI. And we hope that you'll be joining us again soon. Thank you. Thanks for listening to The New World of Work by the McKinsey Global Institute. If you enjoyed today's episode, please rate us on iTunes and share this podcast with your friends. To learn more about the research discussed in today's episode, visit mckinsey.com MGI or follow at McKinsey underscore MGI on Twitter.